I am Professor Jeremiah McCoy, the monstrous ecologist. I've been asked by my esteemed colleague Jeff Greiner, here on the Township, to help enlighten his listeners to the various vagaries of villainous flora and fauna, vis-a-vis monsters. In these tales from the desk of the monstrous ecologist, we will be digging into various inspirations for the monsters in D&D, both real-world and fictional, as well as the various iterations through the various editions. I will hopefully entertain you with some details that you might not know. Maybe it will also give inspiration in how to use said monsters in your campaign. But first, allow me to take a minor digression and pause for a brief word from our sponsors. The history of dice is long. Indeed, they may be the oldest implements of gambling known to man. Dice were found in tombs that are nearly 4,000 years old. The oldest complete board game, The Game of Ur, used four-sided dice. They are ancient and important to games of chance. Isn't it lovely that we have the fellows at EasyRoller.com to provide us with our modern inheritors of these ancient objects. You can order lovely plastic sets, of course, or... For a more exotic choice, you may order some metal ones. You can also order dice trays, bags, and even specialty dice for all your dicing needs. Indeed, Easy Roller is the best choice for your dicing needs. And now, there are few creatures which will stimulate dread in adventurers. Dragons are powerful, but are meant to be slain. Demons? Adventurers will storm the gates of the abyss, laughing all the way. Tell them there is a lich in the area, however, and they become cautious. The lich requires consideration. They are iconic and terrible. Their name, Vecna, or Acererak, is rightfully dreaded. Zastam in the Forgotten Realms and Arandis Vol in Eberron are world-shaking villains who often drive changes in the world. The Lich is rightfully feared. But where do we begin to discuss the Lich. Where do they start? Now, the Lich is an old word, but the idea we associate with the monster, well, that is also old, but they don't combine until much later. The term Lich is an old English word, meaning body or corpse. Churchyards might have a lich gate, which is a covered gateway where funeral processions might begin. Uh, Creatures like liches appear in some legends, 
but are not called liches. For example, Koshai, the Deathless, was described in some stories as being skeletal and that it could not be killed because its soul was stored in a separate hidden object. That certainly sounds like the lich we are familiar with in D&D, but at no point is Koshai referred to as a lich in any of these legends. The literary origins are numerous and sometimes surprising. For by death is wrought greater change than hath been shown, whereas in general the spirit that removed cometh back upon occasion, and is sometimes seen of those in flesh appearing in the form of the body it bore. Yet it hath happened that the veritable body without the spirit hath walked, and it is attested of those encountering who have lived to speak thereon that a lich so raised up hath no natural affection, no remembrance thereof, but only hate. Also it is known that some spirits which in life were benign become by death evil altogether. Now, that passage is from the 1891 story, The Death of Halpin Frazier, by Ambrose Bierce, of course. The story does deal with a terrifying undead, though it does not otherwise resemble the lich that we are familiar with. No, we get something similar in reverse in other sources. Later stories by Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, and H.P. Lovecraft shaped the lich as a monster that we are understand, even if the name was not used in those stories. Gary Gygax himself stated he based the description of the monster on a story called The Sword and the Sorcerer by Gardner Fox. Fox is a worthy subject for a whole line of discussion, as he started in pulp fiction uh, and then moved on to be one of the foundational writers in comics. But that is beside the point. When D&D came along, the Lich became more formally the monster we know today. A skeletal, spell-casting, intelligent undead that keeps its soul in a separate phylactery. Now, as an interesting side note, the term phylactery is not exclusive to the D&D monster. The term phylactery in the real world is used to describe the box containing the Torah some Jews will wear to remind themselves of the law while praying. So, when we see D&D, the first D&D-style lich, well, it appears in the first D&D supplement, the Greyhawk book. It is described as being able to cause fear in creatures below 5th level. Uh, with no saving throw over there, the, their touch could cause paralysis, again, with no saving throw. Um, they can range from 12th to 18th level magic user, 
Uh, and they could be either a magic user or a cleric. Magic users, what they called wizards back in the day. Uh, they didn't have the modern distinctions of wizards, sorcerers, and warlocks. It was just magic user. Now, they, in this version, can cast spells as a caster of their level. This seems to be a consistent theme in a lot of the iterations thereafter. They get one attack per turn and do one to ten hit points plus a special effect that one presumes is the paralysis that they described earlier. But the presentation isn't clear on that point. The encounter table informs us they can appear in groups of one to four and they have an armor class of three and move up to six inches and have 10 or more hit dice. They are always found in their lair and have a treasure type of A. Now this is a little sparse on details, but there is enough there to suggest some things about what the Lich would later become in further editions of D&D. A Lich exists because of its own desire to use powerful arcane magics. Uh, in first edition, this is part of its description. The Lich passes from a state of humanity to non-humanity, non-living existence through force of will. It retains this status by certain conjurations, enchantments, and a phylactery. A lich is most often encountered within hidden chambers. Their lair is typically in some wilderness area or vast underground labyrinth, and in any case, both solidly constructed of stone and very dark. Through the power which changes the creature from human to lich, the armor class becomes the equivalent of plus one plate armor and plus one shield. Armor class, zero. In a similar fashion, hit dice are eight-sided, and the Lich can be affected only by magical attack forms or by monsters with magical properties or six or more hit dice. Liches were formerly ultra-powerful magic users or magic user clerics of not less than 18th level magic use. Their touch is so cold as to cause 1 to 10 points of damage and paralyze opponents who fail to make their saving throw. This is a slight difference from the previous version. You get a saving throw at this point. Uh, the mere sight of the Lich will cause any creature below 5th level or 5 hit dice to flee in panic from fear. Now that is again without a saving throw. All liches are able to use magic appropriate to the level they had obtained prior to becoming non-human. Now, that is an odd way to phrase things, but it is specifically related to what was their power as a wizard or a cleric before they changed? What spells could they cast? Which ones could they memorize? And so on. Outside of their undead nature, at this point, 
Most of their abilities are tied to just their spellcasting, like any other wizard. Now, the following spells or attack forms have no effect on liches. Charm, Sleep, Enfeeblement, Polymorph, Cold, Electricity, Insanity, or Death Spells or Symbols. Now, let's break this open a bit and say you cannot influence a lich's mind is what this really boils down to. You can't charm them. You can't cast a spell that makes them your friend. You can't put them to sleep. You can't make them suddenly stupid. Their minds are beyond your ability to affect at all. There, you might be able to get a telepathy spell or something along those lines, but nothing that would directly affect the mind. Also in that list, polymorph. Uh, being resistant, in fact immune, to polymorph means that any sort of hostile, I'm going to turn you into a frog option, is off the table. Cold, cone of cold, and other cold-based spells have no effect. Electricity-based spells have no effect. So no lightning bolts, insanity, or death spells. Those are pretty self-explanatory. And I can understand the notion that death spells don't work on something that is, in fact, already dead. Now, they do describe the Lich at this point. A Lich appears very much as it as does a, a white or a mummy, being a skeletal form, eye sockets that are merely black holes with glowing points of light, and their garments tend to be rotting, as if from lack of care, though most of them were originally of a rich flavor. Simply put, to be that powerful a caster meant that you were rich enough to afford the good things in life. So, those good things were probably worn on you when you turned into an undead. Dragon Magazine 26 details the process for creating a lich in greater detail. It is stated, again, that they are high-level clerics or magic users. This cleric as lich does come up, though it is not as iconic as the wizard-type magic user. Uh, but we will talk about some versions of liches that are more oriented towards the cleric than the wizard. This certainly implies the path is not just for mages, though. Um, so keep that in mind. Before becoming lich, the cleric or magic user must have at least reached 14th level although 18th level is most common. Preparation for lichdom occurs while the figure is still alive and must be completed before their first death. If they die be somewhere along the line and is resurrected, they've got to start all over again. 
The lich needs spells to make the phylactery. That is the first step. You must make the phylactery. In this case, you would cast a spell called Magic Jar, uh, one called Trap the Soul, and Enchant Item. Plus, have an object of sufficient value and quality to be the phylactery. Now, an item for a phylactery must be of high quality, solid, and at least 2,000 gold pieces of value. There are certain other uh, math variables that they use in the various descriptions to determine, but if you're 18th level, it's probably going to be at least a 2,000 gold piece object itself without any of the enchantments on it. So, it's not a cheap endeavor. The item must make a saving throw. A cleric would have to actually have the spells cast for them in first edition, because some of these spells were not cleric spells. But you, they could use it after those spells were cast. It can have other enchantments, but... Uh, the one odd specification that I found in my research was that it could not be made of wood. There's not really much of an explanation as to why, though I suspect it has something to do about the living material. But who can say? Uh, the phylactery casting takes at least 18 hours. And there is a chance of failure. Uh, after you've done it, you must rest from for another 2-7 to seven days. And while you're resting, you don't get the spells that you use to make the phylactery back. Um, once the spell is cast and you have rested, the recipient's soul and hit points are stored in the phylactery itself. This becomes important at the next step. Now, the next time the character dies, regardless of circumstances, they will go to the phylactery, no matter how far away and no matter what obstacles are in the way. This includes things like a cube of force, a prismatic spheres, lead. Nothing stops you. You go to the phylactery. They will need a body within 90 feet that they will attempt to possess. Um, there is a complex formula detailing how the save for that body is determined. Uh, it is best if the body was originally theirs, but they can possess other bodies if it's needed. There is a potion that you prepare to make that transition. Uh, and the potion is also described. It is not a pleasant thing to drink. Uh, <laughs> Let me uh, read off some of these, the list of items in this potion, and you will see that it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, two pinches of pure arsenic. One pinch of belladonna. One measure of fresh phase spider venom, under 30 days old. Uh, one measure of fresh wyvern venom, under 60 days old. Uh, the blood of a dead humanoid infant killed by a phase spider. You may have picked up that liches are generally evil. Now you're beginning to see why. 
The blood of a dead humanoid infant killed by a mixture of arsenic and belladonna. The heart of a virgin humanoid killed by a wyvern venom. One quart of blood from a vampire or a person infected with vampirism. The ground reproductive glands of seven giant moths. Uh, head for less than, you know, less than 60 days. They have to have uh, been removed within the last 60 days. Now, these items are mixed in the order given by the light of the full moon. The effects of the poison range from putting one in a coma and or losing one of your senses. You could go blind, for instance, but successfully becoming a lich um, or you could fail to become a lich and possibly die in the process. If you die and have to be resurrected, you have to start over. It is not an easy task, to be sure. Now, we should take a look at the next stage in a lich's evolution. The next stage is the demi-lich. But before we get into the demi-lich, we should probably talk about where it was introduced. The Tomb of Horrors. Now, the Tomb of Horrors adventure is one of the most storied adventures in the history of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, it is filled with deadly traps and was, in fact, intended to weed out weak adventurers. Now, it was created by a creature named Acererak. And Acererak is one of the most famous liches, or in this case, demi-liches, in Dungeons and Dragons. We should talk about where Acererak comes from. Acererak is, or was, a Cambian, or possibly a tiefling. It depends on which history you're reading. His father was a Baylor and a follower of Orcus. His mother was, well, his mother was killed by a torch-wielding mob after he was born. And the only reason he wasn't killed by a torch-wielding mob was because of Vecna, the other really famous lich in Dungeons & Dragons lore. He follows Vecna for some years and comes to appreciate the benefits of undeath while serving him. After leaving Vecna's employ, Sererak went on to worship Orcus, a demon lord of undeath. Sort of makes sense. Now, this worship may actually have been a false faith, uh, but he did serve the demon lord for some time and uh, gain certain benefits for doing so. He built a base for himself and killed all the people who helped him build it and sealed himself up in it, and became a lich. Over time, he then became a demi-lich. That base we were speaking of is actually the Tomb of Hars, which he used to weed out the weak souls so that the ones who were really strong, who made it to the end, were going to be satisfying when he stole their souls. Sometime later... Uh, Acererak makes his home in a separate demi-plane called Moyle. 
He created a community of necromancers in a connected city called Skull City. Now, the demiplane of Moyle is connected to the negative energy plane, which may be considered the shadow plane or not, depending on the edition and how you want to read that. In more recent accounts, he was shown to have entered the Forgotten Realms and built the Tomb of Annihilation, which imprisoned dead gods and channeled the energy of death in Faerun. It also served as a means to find strong souls for him to feed on. Serac is the first demi-lich in D&D, and his power is hard to overstate. He walks among the plains and has reoccurred throughout the story of Dungeons & Dragons. The demi-lich is, contrary to what you might believe based on this name, actually a more terrible version of liches. It is a lich who has ascended beyond the few limitations a lich already has. When encountered, you will encounter a dust wraith-like form. This dust wraith form has all the powers of a wraith, but it can't be turned, so cleric turning does not work on them. Every point of damage done to the dust gets converted into energy. At 50 points of energy, it transforms into another form of undead. Uh, a ghost, in particular. Uh, it has the powers and abilities of a ghost. And, again, can't be turned. All the while, there will be a skull present. With gems for teeth. If the skull is touched, because adventurers might understand that maybe the ghost is not the problem maybe the skull is. If the skull is touched, it emits a howl that acts like a death ray to anyone within 20 feet, save or die. After the howl, the skull may use its gem teeth to cast a trap soul spell, which they tend to direct on the most powerful person, the most powerful threat in the area. If you have an amulet of life protection, your soul is not trapped in the gem, but your body is still destroyed. You are still dead. If you succeed in your save, your body is still dead. You just didn't lose your soul. Also, the Demi-Lich can pronounce curses on anyone in the vicinity. Even if the victim has the curse removed, they permanently lose one point of charisma. Did this sound bad enough? Well, it gets worse. Say you decide that, well, the skull is the problem. We must destroy the skull. Well, the Demi-Lich's skull has an uh, armor class of negative six, which in these early editions is really quite good. It would be not far off the modern equivalent of having a 26 armor class and 50 hit points which is hard to hit but sounds fragile right only 50 hit points however to hit the skull you must have a, a weapon that is at least plus five magic weapon or a vorpal weapon or a sort of sharpness to hit it a paddleton 
can get by a little bit lower. They can only require a plus four magic weapon or a mace of disruption, which will do one point of damage every time they hit. So that could take a while. Spells are also limited. A forget spell will make the skulls sink to the floor without attacking, which is very helpful. Uh, the spell evil will do 1d4 plus 1 points of damage. A shatter spell will do 3d6 points of damage. That's actually quite effective. A holy word does 5d6 points of damage. And power word kill cast from the ethereal or astral plane will kill the skull. All other spells have no effect. All of the normal direct damaging spells that you mind to cast just don't work. Now, say that you manage to kill the skull. You destroy it. If the skull is destroyed, the stolen souls that it grabbed with its trapped soul ability that were trapped in the gemstones can make a save, or they're going to die permanently. If the gems are shattered and there's no body for them to enter, they are also lost. Even after shattering the skull, if you have not immersed it in holy water and cast dispel magic upon it, the Demi Lich will reform. As I said, the Demi Lich is a more terrible version of a Lich. If you encounter one, you should probably run away. That is the safest option. If nothing else, it will make you feel better about yourself. Now, having covered the basics, I will wrap up this chapter. When considering the vast iterations of the Lich, I had to confront the fact that it needed more than one episode to cover. So, we have begun the tale, but we will return with the second part soon. In the second part, we will dive into the second edition and the large variety of liches found in that edition, such as in Ravenloft and other places. We will also spend time talking about the most iconic lich of all of D&D, Vecna. Now, if you liked this episode, you may find it over on the tomeshow.com website. From there, you can leave comments, uh, you can follow links to our Patreon, and our affiliate links. Be sure to check out EasyRoller.com and tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have an excellent day.